Okay. Himmel. Charlie always says, this is the one set of verses here in this uh, psalm. To read before you read the Bible. Anyhow, Himmel. It's uh, to gather, walk, a camel foot. Do good to your servant, and I will live. I will obey your word. Open my eyes that I may see wonderful things in your law. I am a stranger on earth. Do not hide your commands from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. You rebuke the arrogant who are cursed and who stray from your commands. Remove from me scorn and contempt, for I kept your statutes. No rulers sit together and slander me. Your servant will meditate on your decrees. Your statutes are my delight. They are my counselors. All right. That's wonderful. Gimel. Okay. And then uh, let's see. We have. Yes. We, we might get done tonight. Uh, we might get done tonight. I don't know if we'll get done tonight, but we might get done tonight. So. Let's see. Today is the 16th, I believe. All day. I could be wrong, but. 16th. Okay, let's see here. It happened. It all happened just as the Bible said it would. After the death of Alexander the Great in 323 BC, four of his generals divided up his kingdom among themselves with Seleucus gaining control of Syria and Ptolemy, controlling e Ptolemy controlling Egypt. Palestine was under the rule of the Ptolemies until 198 BC when the Seleucid dynasty won control. In the initial years of the Seleucid reign, the Jews enjoyed a period of brief tranquility. The Seleucid ruler Antiochus III permitted the Jewish people to worship according to their law. In 187 BC, Antiochus III was succeeded by his eldest son, Seleucus IV Philopater, and then by his youngest son, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, in 175 BC. The kingdom inherited by <clears throat> excuse me, by Antiochus, Antiochus IV Epiphanes was unstable. Antiochus's re remedy for this was a vigorous program of Hellenization, introducing Greek culture and institutions throughout his kingdom. In his mind, one of the unifying factors was religion. Therefore, in 169 BC, he began to encourage his subjects to worship himself is the manifestation of Zeus. On coins, he was called Theos Epiphanes, meaning the manifest God. However, his enemies changed just one Greek letter in his name, making it Epimanes, meaning madman. One of the first disputes that Antiochus IV had to settle was between the Jewish high priest Onias III, who supported Egypt, and his brother Jason, who was a supporter of the Seleucids. By outbribing Onias, Jason secured the high priesthood and made Jerusalem a Greek city. Then in 171 BC, Menelaus, a friend of Jason, bid even more than Jason for the high priesthood. Because Antiochus needed money, he gave the position to Menelaus, even though he was not a descendant of Aaron, and thus was not qualified for the office. Jason fled to the territory of the Ammonites. Menelaus then plundered the temple, causing the inhabitants of Jerusalem to riot. Jason returned to help the Jerusalemites avenge Menelaus's ravaging of the temple. Hearing that his high priest was being attacked, Antiochus interrupted this as a revolt. I'm sorry, he interpreted this as a revolt against him and so determined to subdue Jerusalem. 
Returning there with Menelaus, he robbed the temple of its remaining treasures and then left the city under the control of one of his commanders. Antiochus then decided to make Palestine a buffer zone between himself and Egypt. He returned to Jerusalem, broke down the city walls, and made the old city of David into a military fortress. <clears throat> In his self-appointed role as Zeus Manifest, he ordered vigorous Hellenization and the elimination of the Jewish religion. He forbade Jews to keep the Sabbath, to offer sacrifices, or to circumcise, and ordered the destruction of all copies of the Torah. Jews were ordered to offer unclean sacrifices and to eat the flesh of pigs, all forbidden by Jewish law. The ultimate desecration of the Jewish temple occurred on December 16, 167 BC, when Antiochus ordered that an altar of Zeus be built on top of the altar of burnt offering, and swine's flesh was offered there to Zeus. Nearly 400 years earlier, the prophet Daniel had prophesied this exact event in Daniel 11. Antiochus fulfilled the prophecy precisely when his army took over the temple fortress, polluting the sanctuary, putting a stop to the daily sacrifices, and setting up the sacrilegious object that causes desecration. Antiochus's act of desecration is a precursor of the final act of desecration, which occurred to Jesus, will, <clears throat> which will occur shortly before for his second coming. A few days before his crucifixion, Jesus said, the time will come when you will see what Daniel the prophet spoke about, the, the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing in the holy place. Reader, pay attention. In other words, Jesus is telling us to be watching for these signs as we await his second coming. I'm not going to be watching for those signs because I'm going to be out of here at the rapture. Okay, those things are pertaining to Israel during the tribulation period. Paul is very clear about that in the timeline he gives in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We will not be here. We will be out of here. That is uh, tribulation period stuff. If you believe in a mid-trib rapture, you're a heretic. Okay, that's no. not true. But um, it's just it's bad, bad, yeah, bad doctrine. Uh, that day will not come until there is a great, here it is, 2 Thessalonians 2, until there is a great rebellion against God and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the one who brings destruction. He will exalt himself and defy every god that there is and tear down every object of adoration and worship. He will position himself in the temple of God, claiming that he himself is God. So he said that in that, Titius, whatever his name was, did this. Antiochus. 180 years B.C.? Uh, yeah, I think it was 180 B.C. Now, I've already lost my place. Right, right. Oh, that, there that it is. Said, right? um, yeah, 171 B.C. and uh, 175 B.C., 198 B.C. So they're all happening in that time right. frame, all the different people that were in there. But we'll say about 175 but B.C. But the Romans destroyed it all at 70 B.C. That, that's right. They got things back in order after that occurred. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, of course, they after all that happened, they... Uh, had a period of, you know, under the Roman rule, and then after that, they were destroyed in AD 70. They've been putting up, uh, I mean, they've been uh, under punishment all that time, and uh, despite being back in the land of Israel, they are still not right with the Lord, but that correct. is correct. Okay, we got a couple prayer requests, and we'll get started. Actually, I got two other things to do before we get started. First is some prayer requests. Sean in Lehigh Acres, I've been bringing him up lately. This poor guy, 
he just wants to go be with the Lord. His body is completely failing, and he's been in the hospital, and he's miserable. So we want to pray for Sean that just the Lord uh, responds to Sean's request, whatever they may be, healing or going home to be with the Lord. And then Bruce and Jackie in Missouri are having some setbacks. They got three steps forward and went back two steps this past week. And so uh, had a little bit of good news, maybe a, a job opportunity, but uh, we want to keep them in prayer. And then Ailey, a <clears throat> excuse me, Adrian, who is out in um, Arizona, Adrian Uajardo, his uh, parents are having their 65th anniversary. Okay. Uh, his father is Jesus and his mother is Sylvia. And he is concerned because they're immersed in Catholicism. And so he would like us to pray that they would have their uh, uh, their hearts more fully turned to Christ and less uh, ritual and Catholicism. And so that's certainly something important. And then without asking, I know that Lisa in um, Australia is having a really bad time with health and some issues. So we want to keep her in prayer as well, for sure. So uh, we'll do that. And then, like I said, I got two more things to do. The first one is an appeal. We all know Isaac in Uganda. Uh, we got people that help him each month, and he has asked for something different, okay? And I would like to see if we could get enough people together to uh, have this come about. I asked him, he said, you know, I'm t thinking of, about my sister. I'd like her to be able to go to school, and he didn't ask. He just simply made it, and I went back to him. I said, well, what is it to, that will get her through schooling? And he said the nursing school course here in Uganda is five semesters, and each semester is for six months. The first semester is $1,300. This includes registration and admissions and the textbooks and other course needs plus hostels and meals. $1,300 for six months of everything. That's meals. That's living in the hostel, right. everything. Um, that's not expensive. The rest of the four semesters is for $900 per semester. So it's $400 less after the initial costs. This includes fees, meals, and accommodations per semester. The payment of the fees per semester semester is acceptable in installments in period of the first five months per semester. The total fees of the entire course of the five months is $4,900 to send a woman through nursing school to have an education where she can then turn around and do nursing and wifery for the rest of her life. I think that's a good investment. I would hope that people would email me and I can give you the information. If we could just get 1300 13 people to offer $100 a month or, you know, somebody that's rich can pay $500 a month, whatever, uh, not a month for, per semester. And uh, I will commit to helping if we can get close to this and we're not over it. I already help Isaac every month, but I will, I will add to that if we can get enough people to say, I would like to help put that young lady through nursing school. So keep that in so mind. Is and, her plan to help him? What's that? Is her plan to help him? Oh, I have no idea what her plan is. She just, he he's looking for something. And he never asked for that. Just so right. you know, that wasn't something that he had asked for. He just mentioned, oh, my sister wants to go through nursing school, and I'm the one that asked. And then he sent that information to me. So um, I got one more thing to read you here. This is from my friend Jerry. He's out in Montana. And uh, he, he uh, wrote me a letter. It's got... Um, uh, Woody, which I love the old Woodies. You know, if you were a surfer growing up, everybody wanted a Woody wagon with a board on top. Not well, cheers. This, no, no, not cheers. And this has got lots of dogs inside there. So there's, and he said, it just made me happy to read this. And so I thought I'd share a little bit of it with you. Um, he uh, mentioned that uh, uh, 
one of the things he said is that, you know, he, he loves the studies because we keep harping on the same thing. You're, you will not lose your salvation. He knows the verses. He says, that's the important thing. All the other things, I listen, I enjoy it. But what he said here that I thought was really great is he says, I also wanted to tell you my daughter, Teresa Fuller, has committed, I'm sorry, has completed the Genesis sermons currently working on Exodus. He's got his daughter watching these. And she watched all of the Genesis sermons. And I thought that is marvelous. So um, it just, it blesses my heart to know that, you know, he appreciates the church, but then he's got his daughter watching it. And so uh, How old I, is she? Uh, I don't know. He, he didn't say anything about that. But then he said, tell all the folks I say, hey, especially Jim and Burke, they are interesting characters. So there you go with that. Uh, so yeah, at least interesting. So uh, I just thought I'd share that with you is that he has actually taken the time to share these with his daughter. And now she has gone through, there's 130 Genesis sermons sure. and she uh, obviously stuck it out, which I just thought was very impressive. So there you go with that. And then we're going to get into the book of Ephesians. We're almost done. I don't know if we'll finish today, but we'll try. We'll try to get through. We got uh, we're in six nineteen, and I don't know how many verses there are. Well, let's uh, see. There's uh, today. Uh, if we, we only do this final paragraph here, one, two, two, two verses, and then there's one, two, three, four verses. Yeah, we're not going to get the final reading. Yeah, I don't. I don't want to plan on getting through the whole thing today. Yeah. So we maybe we will. We've only got six pages. So okay. So. Oh, thank you. Yes, Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to come into your presence, and we certainly pray for the people that were mentioned there, some with spiritual needs, some with physical needs, etc. Lord, we just lift them all up to you, and we ask that you would have your kind hand upon them for uh, for good in their life. And uh, poor Sean, whatever you have for him, we would just ask that you would take away his his pain. He's just miserable, Lord, and I would just especially ask that you would just uh, respond to whatever prayer request he has that uh, it's, will will help him uh, with the, the time in his life that he's facing. And Lord, uh, we just ask that you bless this time here in this class, and we certainly thank you for the chance to get into your word, and we would pray that what is said here would be appropriate, would not be improper doctrine, and if it is, that you would lead people away from anything that is incorrectly said pray this that you'll be glorified and we certainly pray it in jesus name amen, amen. <coughs> so i could start right where it is to paragraph four and go through all the whatever you want to do armor of god well my go, i would go back to uh 17 how's that because it'll at least tell us the context okay take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of god and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests <laughs> With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. 19. Pray also for me that whatever, whenever I open my mouth, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel. Okay, this one says boldly. Want to fight about it? No. Okay. And for me that utterance may be given would... to me that I may open my mouth boldly or furiously. To make known the mystery of the gospel. Oh, I didn't mention that John and his wife and daughter are here. They drove all the way from Dundee. Now, I got an email, what, 4 o'clock this morning? I don't know. It was early this morning. And uh, he just said, I wanted to say hi. And not a word about coming down here. And all of a sudden, here they are. So good to have you guys. 
all the way from Dundee, Florida. How long is that drive? Two hours. That's what I thought, but I, I was pretty sure it was about a two-hour drive. Okay, we got uh, uh, but it wasn't just for coming here. They also had pizza, so, yeah. Oh, boy. 6,000 pizzerias. Yeah, you pass a lot of them, but we got some really good ones right here in this area. Okay, 619. In the previous verse, Paul had asked for prayer and supplication to be made for all the saints. Now he makes a specific personal extra request by saying, and for me. He felt that he needed their additional and explicit prayers, so his words, that utterance may be given to me. He wanted, I would love to have that one every single Sunday. People pray for my utterance because I'm the most tongue-twisted person on the planet, and I'm also dyslexic, so I'm always reading things backwards. And uh, so I understand Paul asking people to pray that he has utterance be given to him. He wanted prayers for the very words he would speak, desiring that they would be in accord with his calling and is led by the Spirit. This then would be a confirmation of what Jesus told the disciples in Matthew chapter 10. So let me take you there. And he says in Matthew 10, oops, come on, Charlie. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. Paul was asking that would be specifically the case, that what he would say would be filled with the Spirit, without directly saying in that manner. That's certainly what he's asking for. Now, um, we're going through Acts chapter 3 right now in the uh, daily study. And I was thinking of these exact verses just this morning. It's kind of funny how that happens because I'm uh, reading, I'm analyzing Paul's words to type up a commentary. And I just kept thinking, you know, the Lord said that he would give them the right words to speak at the right time. And here they are doing exactly that. Today, I think I typed 23. Uh, it'd be good to be in the right chapter. Yes. Okay. 23 over here. Um, uh I'll just go back and read you a few verses, and you can see how, if you read the commentary, you'll especially see it, just because it's broken down into little sections, but you can see how the Lord filled Peter with wisdom in exactly what to say. Now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, talking about crucifying Christ, as did also your rulers, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he is thus fulfilled. Okay, I don't want to get too deep into it because the commentaries are long and you can go read them. But he goes on, repent therefore and be converted. Now it's funny how uh, people like the Church of Christ will take Acts 2.38 and they'll say, um, repent and be baptized. And they say, you have to do that. Okay, but they never cite Acts 3.19, which says, repent and be converted. Now, why don't they do that? I talked about that last week. And if you compare them and you look at the analysis, you'll see what I'm talking about. But they, they pick one verse out of its intended context, which is speaking to the Jews who had just crucified Christ. And they say, well, this applies to you here in the church. And it doesn't. Okay. It they abuse what the word repent means. Well, yeah, the word repent, all it means is to change your mind. That's all it means. It doesn't mean anything else. Change your mind. Metanoio in Greek. And so... For somebody to say repent, that means they had to have had a mind attitude about something. What did they just do? They rejected Christ. He's saying repent. Change your mind about what you have done. Okay? 
But people take that word and they insert all kinds of inappropriate theology into what repent means. Um, the famous one is the Australian guy that, um, what's his name, um, uh, Ray Comfort. He's always telling, he gives people the gospel and then he says, and what you need to do after giving them the gospel, he says, now what you need to do, which isn't the gospel at all. He says, repent. And then he starts telling him, you need to do this and you need to do that. Turn from this sin and turn from that sin. That's not repenting. That is changing your ways after coming to Christ. Christ is the healer. He is the physician and he will heal you after you go to him. Not before. You don't heal yourself and then go to the doctor. But he gets everything right up to a point, and then all of a sudden he says, you need to do this and to do this and to do this in order to be saved. It's putting the horse behind the cart and telling the horse to push, and you don't do it that way. Anyway, that's a completely separate issue, but repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Does that apply to the church at all? I'm talking about right now. No. Israel's the one that's going to go into exile. They're the ones that are going to be punished for having rejected the Lord. Times of refreshing are talking about the millennial kingdom. Okay, it's not talking about the, the church age itself. He's talking to unsaved people in Israel about what they have just done and what will happen to them in the future someday. It's not talking about the normal operations of the church. Peter's already saved. Anyway, going on, uh, refreshing come, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before whom heaven must receive until the, till the times of restoration of all things. Are we looking for that? Are we replacement theologians who say that the church has replaced Israel and that we're going to make all things good and then Christ will return? Because that's what they teach in the church. I'm talking about the, uh, the Reformed churches. We are going to convert the world, and eventually it'll be so nice that Christ will want to return. And that's not what's going to happen. And just a remnant of them yeah, will be it, remained? Is yeah, that, that it makes no sense. <laughs> So, it, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration, which is speaking of the millennial kingdom, okay, uh, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. For Moses truly said to the, Christ is going to come for us before the world devolves more until it goes into utter chaos. That's what's going to happen. That's called the rapture. And then the world's going to go into utter chaos and then Christ will return and he will restore all things. They get it all out of order. I, I, you know, you understand, you look back in the 500, 600 years ago and the world didn't have communication. They didn't know. They'd see a couple Jews living in the, the ghettos of their city or, you know, they're over there. There's not many of them. They had no idea that there's a Jew here and there's a Jew here and they're all over the world and that God would regather them. Now, if they had properly read their Bible, they would have understood that. They, they, I don't want to say they had an excuse, but it was part of God's plan for them to not understand that. Because if they knew that Israel was the key to everything, then they would have been evangelizing the Jews all along, and they would have been seeking out every Jew on the face of the planet. They got it wrong, and there are reasons for that. And it wouldn't have worked. It wouldn't have worked anyway, because it wasn't in God's timing. But this is the sequence of events, what? Peter is speaking to these people. They're going to go into exile, and then the, the church will go on, led by the Gentiles. Not a separate gospel, same gospel, but it will be led by the Gentiles until the time that the Gentiles are fulfilled. The rapture will happen, and then the tribulation period. The focus will be just like they said in that, that thing we read today. And then after that, the world's just about going to come apart at its, at its seams, and Christ is going to return, and he's going to cure all things. But that's what he's speaking about here. 
Okay, for Moses truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Okay, once again, who is he speaking to? He's speaking to the Jews who are under the law. He's citing Moses. Moses truly said to the fathers, it's not speaking to us. We're not under Moses. Christ came and he annulled the old covenant in his blood. It is annulled, it is set aside, it is obsolete according to the book of Hebrews. It's nailed to the cross according to Paul, okay? But he's speaking to them. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Israel, 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 him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among his people. It's all speaking to Israel. It's all speaking about them under the law. And if you've been following the Deuteronomy sermons, you know, Moses is saying that there will be an end to the law. He's, he doesn't say it explicitly, but it is implied in what he says. There will be a prophet like me. What does, if you remember the sermon, I, I detail it in the commentary, which I typed a couple days ago, yesterday. But what does a prophet like me mean? What are some of the things that means? When Moses says, a prophet like me will come. You don't remember the sermon. Burke is sitting there. He's fidgeting. Anybody else? Prophet like me. I don't know where that's from, but... What was Moses saying when he said, a prophet like me? He prophesied that the Lord Jesus was going to come. But, like but what, does it, what does it mean, a prophet like me? It'll be Jesus, that's right. But, but what he's does... a prophet. Well, there are lots of prophets. There's a whole succession of prophets. Were they not prophets like Moses? I'm trying to get you to remember the sermon. Anybody? Prophet like me is a prophet that he ministered the covenant. Remember, he did the priestly functions at the very beginning. Before Aaron was the high priest, this will be a person that performs priestly duties, just like Moses did. He will be a legislator of the covenant. In other words, he will be the one that administers the covenant. Okay, and the very fact that Moses initiated a covenant means that he will initiate a covenant. The, the three things that he will do under the new covenant are what Moses did under the old covenant. And that's why the book of Hebrews says he's better than Aaron because he's a priest. He's better than Moses. He's the legislature. He's better than the prophets. He is the, he's the prophet, the priest, and the king, all of these things. But Moses sat in that role under the Mosaic Covenant. After Moses, there wasn't anybody that did the things that Moses did. And once again, he was not a priest after Aaron was ordained. But before Aaron was ordained, Moses performed the priestly duties. So that's what it means, a prophet like me. Okay? We are brought into the New Covenant that was prophesied in Isaiah, but we are not the ones to whom the New Covenant was given. That was given to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So, Everything, the reason why I'm devolving to this is because Paul asked for prayers for him to make proper utterance. Well, that is exactly what happened to Peter. Peter understood these things, and he spoke to these, and I'm not going to go down to the end of the uh, chapter, but you see, Peter is speaking to these people, and he's saying words that the Lord purposefully intended for Peter to say. It was a brilliant, brilliant uh, exposition of what needed to be said. If you tie it together with Acts chapter 2, what Peter said, I mean, it just fills up everything that needs to be said to those people. And the fact is that some of them came to Christ, but the nation did not come to Christ, okay? And so this is what happens when, when 
Israel as a nation rejected the Lord, they were exiled. And the Lord is not going to waste 2,000 years of time while the Jews are being exiled. So what did he do? He introduced Paul, who carried the exact same message of salvation, the gospel, to the Gentiles. He also talked to the Jews. He didn't exclusively speak to the uh, Gentiles. He did talk to the Jews, but his message was predominantly to the Gentiles. Why? Because something needed to fill these past 2,000 years, and that is exactly what's happened. The same message goes to Jews and the Gentiles today. Some receive it, some don't, but that is why the book of Acts is structured the way it is. All of that came out of Peter's mouth in those two chapters, and it's gonna, more is going to come out in chapter 4 when he speaks to who? The leaders. Remember, the, oh, I won't take you there, but remember, they get arrested, and they go and testify before the high priest. So they testified to everybody. I mean, it was just everybody was testified to. Everything that Peter says is laid out so beautifully to do exactly what Jesus said. It's not you who's speaking. It'll be me speaking through you. That is evident as it can be when you look at the words in detail and you understand what's going on. Anyway, uh, Matthew 10, 19, and 20 were those verses. Jesus' words were directed to those who would speak on his behalf in the transmission of the gospel message. This certainly included Paul. Though his commission came later, he was still appointed an apostle of Jesus Christ, and he desired prayers that his words would not be of him, but rather given to him by the Spirit. This utterance is then further explained by the words, that I may open my mouth. Paul is asking for prayers, words be given to him, that he may open his mouth. It's wonderful if you know all of the theology in the world, but if you don't share it with anybody, you're not doing anybody but yourself any good at all. That's why when Burke, he does all these studies every day, and he's always finding something interesting, he doesn't just say, wow, that's great, and turn off his computer. He types it up, and he sends it out to whoever wants it. He's, you've got, what, about 8,000 people on your email list. I don't know how you keep control of it. He sends it out, though. Every single day, I get something from Burke, sometimes two or three things, and it's always something interesting. Okay, so you got to open your mouth, and Paul says that I may open my mouth. In Scripture, the idea of opening one's mouth indicates an intentional and authoritative utterance for direction, teaching, and instruction. Burke may not be speaking to people when he sends out that email, but he is, in essence, opening his mouth. His mind is now engaged, and it's sending something out for people to understand as well. For example, that term is used when Jesus spoke out the Beatitudes in Matthew. Anybody know where the Beatitudes are? What? Okay, that's right. Starting in Matthew 5. Then it says right there in Matthew 5, 1, And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. It's an authoritative way. It's a way of saying there is an authoritative teaching doctrine and instruction that is coming along, Matthew 5, 1 and 2. Okay, somebody asked me about uh, the apostles this week. I, I think two people actually did because I had to answer it, and I say things from time to time, or I will type things from time to time, and they ask, well, I don't understand. Why do you say that there are no apostles anymore? And uh, so it's a good time to review that because Paul was, uh, we were mentioning, he was still an appointed apostle of Jesus Christ. An apostle, all apostle means Anybody? Sent. Sent one. That's it. Sent. Okay. 
a person is sent. So if I was to, or actually we as a church were to send somebody to Uganda, we could say this is an apostle of the superior word. There would be no need for that. Okay, I, we don't need titles here. But um, uh, Jesus has to personally send somebody for them to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. If Jesus does not send them, then they can't claim the title. Jesus is where? In Jerusalem? Sending people out? No. He is in heaven. The last person that was personally sent by Jesus is recorded in anybody? Acts 9. Paul. That's right. Paul, Acts 9. That's the last person. And Paul even admitted, I'm an apostle, but I am one as born out of due time. He was selected later, but it was for a specific person, purpose. But Paul was an apostle of Jesus Christ. One of the qualifications, Paul lists them in 1 Corinthians, I'm forgetting the chapter, but he says, um, I personally saw the Lord Jesus. That was one of the requirements, is to behold the Lord, because you have to be commissioned by somebody. You can't just say, oh, this guy is going to commission you, and so we're doing it for you on his behalf, and now you're an apostle of Jesus Christ. No, he had to actually see Jesus commissioning him, and Jesus commissioned him, said, I'm sending you, go, I'm going to send you to these people. Let's read it so you can see where he got his commission and why he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Okay, this is an important thing because chapter if... Nine. Chapter 9. Chapter 9 what? Of First Corinthians. First okay, I'll take you first to chapter 9 of um, of uh, Acts, and he says here... Um, um, well, I'll just take you really quickly to verse 4. Then he fell to the ground because he was blinded by the light and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I'm Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goats. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. So he personally saw the Lord, okay, and then he also was instructed by the Lord. That's in Galatians 4, I think. Uh, it might be 3, but anyway, 3 or 4. But um, it says here, um, uh, now there was a certain disciple, this is verse 10, at Damascus named Ananias, and said to him, the Lord said in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. So the Lord said to him, Arise. Go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man, Ananias, coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive his sight. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he is, he had, and here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go! For he is a chosen vessel of mine, an apostle. He is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. So there we go. He is a selected, appointed apostle. Paul saw the Lord. He received his commission. And then he was given his sight back by the hands of Ananias. Is Ananias' title? He was a brother in uh, Damascus? Or? Uh, he was he was a Jew there, but he was definitely a believer, um, a disciple, it says, disciple. at Damascus. Okay, so, yep. Yeah. And, so you can be, could have seen Jesus. He knew who he was, but he wasn't sent by him. No, he was not. There's nothing to indicate Ananias was an apostle. That's right. He did not receive a commission to do anything. Um, but here, and then 1 Corinthians 9, am I not an apostle? Paul speaking to the Corinthians, have I not seen Christ our Lord? Indicating that he had personally been commissioned. 
Are you not my work in the Lord? If I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. The Lord, he saw him, he commissioned him to go to the Gentiles, he went to the Gentiles, and they believed the message. He is the seal of his apostle, or they are the seal of his apostleship. So, there you go. Um, uh, when people claim titles that they are not entitled to, all it does is damage everything in what's going on around them. You need to be careful to not claim titles, but that is uh, uh, just clarification because uh, why did, oh, I remember it was because I said in the Acts commentary, it wasn't at the Bible study last week, it was in the Acts commentary, and that's why I had some people email me and say, I don't understand, why is he not an apostle? That's why, or why are people today not apostles? Because they are not personally commissioned by the Lord. Okay, and if they think they are, like Joseph Smith, they should, rather than be allowed to continue, they should be put in an insane asylum, okay? Joseph Smith didn't get his, his uh, golden things from the angel Moroni, and yeah, I just, the whole thing is just crazy, but people believe it. Okay. Why do you take them back? Now what? Yeah, why do you take them back? <laughs> Paul's desire of, in the opening of his mouth was to... His words, boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. Vincent's word studies indicates that the word boldly is tied to make known. Boldly to make known rather than open my mouth. Okay? Anyone can open their mouth and proclaim something, but was Paul's desire that he do so in order to boldly impart the mystery of the gospel. So we'll go back and you can think about which way it goes. Hang on, it's uh, 619. And for me, that utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known. It's not open my mouth boldly, but open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery, okay? So he is asking for strength and being bold in making known the mystery of the gospel, okay? That's Vincent's word studies. I would go with him. He's very good at what he analyzes. Anyone can open their mouth and proclaim something, but it was Paul's desire that he do so in order to boldly impart the mystery of the gospel. This was his passion, and it was his great desire. Until Christ completed his work, the gospel was not fully realized. And even after his work, the mystery of it being open to the Gentile people was still not fully realized. Peter got a glimpse of this in Acts chapter 10, but it is Paul who makes known the full scope of what the church age indicates. This is what he desired to proclaim, and this is what he was asking for concerning prayer. Peter saw that Gentiles were included in the New Covenant. He got that, like I said, Acts chapter 10, it's re-explained in Acts chapter 11. And yet he still didn't get it. Even though it happened, he did not get it. And the reason why we know he didn't get it is because eventually... He argued with Paul in Galatia, or actually Paul argued with him in Galatia because Peter was not acting in accord with the gospel. He retreated from the Gentiles and he started to hang out with the Jews because he didn't want them to accuse him of, you know, being a bad guy. And, and so Peter didn't quite get, can we help you, ma'am? I got somebody new to pick on because my mom showed up on time tonight and Jody showed up late, so I, I can pick on somebody new. Um, yes. So um, let's see. She has an excuse, though. I ought to let her go because she has to drive like 20 miles and she gets off work. Well, I know, and I'll continue to do it, but at least she has an excuse. Some people live one mile from here and still show up 10 minutes late. So 
I don't know who I'm talking about now, but okay. Um, yeah, so there you go. Uh, eventually, though, Paul corrected Peter, and Peter got it, because when they went down to the Council of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, it was Peter that stood up and defended the uh, fact that Gentiles do not need to participate in the law of Moses in any way, shape, or form. And what does Peter call the law? He calls it a yoke in okay. Acts chapter 15. It is a yoke. It is bondage. He finally got it completely, but it took him being embarrassed permanently because it's recorded in the uh, book of uh, Galatians for all of us to see. He finally got it, and good job, Peter. He was a little slow on the uptake, but he finally... Uh, when he started the Catholic Church. It... Oh, yeah, when Peter started. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, tell me how that works. You know, they, but the thing is, people don't read their Bible, and that's why we've got over a billion people in this planet that actually believe that Peter was the first pope, is because they don't pick up the word and they don't read it, and that's a very sad place to be. So once again, at the end of the class, we'll just pray in general. But remember, uh, Adrian's parents. Uh, what was it? Hor Jesus and Sylvia. They're you know they. I, they probably know the Lord. A lot. Jim will tell you this. A lot of Catholics probably are saved because they believe the gospel. They believe that Christ died for their sins. They believe that Christ was buried, and they believe that Christ rose again. They understand the Trinity, but they've never made that head knowledge heart knowledge. Some of them have, and then they forgot. They were all happy about being saved, and then they went back into rote Catholicism. And that happens to people. You just forget, and Peter says that in 2 Peter 1 ending in verse 9. They, such a person is, he uses a couple ways to describe him, and then he says that he has forgotten that he was cleansed from his past sins, okay? So a person can be saved, and they cannot even know that they are saved, all right? So I'm not one to point fingers at people as far as their salvation, but you can sure pick out bad doctrine, and we would hope that uh, his parents would come fully to Christ, that would pick up their Bible and they would say, we really want to know what the Bible says, because there are churches all over the world that claim things that are not scriptural. And if they're doing that, then it's unbiblical. And if it's unbiblical, it is not of Christ. So everything follows logically. Uh, life application. Do we suppose in our Christian walk that we can do without prayer? Paul didn't. He asked for prayer openly, understanding that God that God does hear, and he does respond to our prayers. Likewise, we should not refrain from praying or refrain from asking for prayers when the need arises. So it's one of the things that uh, uh, we're to do. It's that simple. I mean, sometimes, you know, we, we just need to have people pray for us or we need to pray for other people. And if nothing else, even if God doesn't respond to the prayer because it's not in his divine will to heal the person, at least they're comforted by knowing that people can empathize with them, that people are there uh, showing sympathy for them, and that alone is enough to help some people through their troubles, okay? But the Lord uh, does not always heal everybody. I'm sorry, Benny Hinn, it doesn't work that way. But verse 620, for which I am an ambassador in chains, pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Okay, verse 20. The words for which are speaking of the mystery of the gospel. And for me, that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. 
okay, that I may speak boldly as I ought to speak, okay? Uh, the mystery, mystery is, um, in the Greek, it is musturion, and all it means is it is something that is not or was not previously revealed, and that it was something that could not have been known any other way than if it was re than if it was revealed by God. That's what a mystery is. In other words, the mystery of the gospel is something that nobody could have known. They could not go to the Old Testament scriptures and say, "I get this." I. They could have known that the Messiah would come. They could have even figured out that he would suffer and die. But they wouldn't have known the reason for these things, is that Christ's gospel was to forgive people of their sins, even though it says it explicitly in um, Isaiah 53, you know, he would bear our iniquities and everything. They wouldn't have understood what the gospel was actually conveying, okay, the way that it is presented in the New Testament. But more than that is the mystery, what Paul will speak of several times, is the mystery of Gentiles included in that. That's more what Paul is dealing with. It was a mystery. Nobody could have figured it out that Gentiles would be included in God's plan of redemption, okay? It does say in Isaiah, you know, he says, um, yet it's too small of a thing to bring back to me the house of Israel, uh, maybe house of Israel and house of Judah. Anyway, he says, but I will make you a servant to the Gentiles as well, okay? It was there, but people wouldn't have figured that out, obviously, because none of them figured it out until they had to be knocked over the head with it. But a mystery is something that could not be deduced without it being revealed specially by God. So that's what he's talking about here. Um, the so uh, your, your translation of New King James has the word mystery in 20 that we're reading right now? No, it was mystery in the previous show. one. Okay, right. Previous verse. And this, what I'm saying is that the words for which, where he says, um, that I may speak boldly as I, oh, I'm sorry, um, verse 19, I may open my mouth boldly, make known the mystery of the gospel for which, for which I am an ambassador, for which is tied to the word mystery. And that's why I wanted people to know what the word mystery was saying. It is this mystery that he is an ambassador in chains. He simply by proclaiming what God had revealed to him and that was now being revealed to the world, that is why he's an ambassador in chains. Okay, there's another mystery that just came to mind. There's like 20 of them in the New Testament. 20 times the word is used. But one of them is the mystery of the rapture. That's right. It's called a mystery. Behold, I tell you a mystery. And we're not all going to die or sleep. We'll, uh, you know, but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, etc. Okay, so um, that's a mystery. Things that you could not have otherwise known, that is what a mystery is. Okay, but Paul or the Lord through Paul, the Lord through Peter, whatever, uh, reveals his mysteries through his people. Okay, so Paul claims to be, oh, his words here, an ambassador in chains, um, are an oxymoron, an oxymoron, or even a paradox. Paul claims to be an ambassador, but he also states that he is in chains. The very nature of being an ambassador signifies one who is granted outward splendor and high honor. This was and continues to be a law of nations. A violation of this honor could then, as now, spark immense outrage and even war. If you're an ambassador, you're supposed to be given the credentials of an ambassador to the people that you are dealing with, and they are supposed to treat the ambassador properly. Okay? If we were to take the ambassador, remember when Japan... Uh, declared war on the United States, and they, they first bombed Pearl Harbor. And then later, 
they came in and they said, we've declared war on you. Okay, so it, and the timing was just kind of suspect. Did they come in late or whatever? Okay, but it happened that way. If it was anybody else, what would they have done? They would have taken those people and they would have arrested them and they would have, instead, they excused them and told them to go back to your country, okay? Because an ambassador is not to be put in chains. That's the point. It's an oxymoron to say I'm an ambassador in chains, okay? We didn't arrest the uh, Japanese ambassador. We said, get out of here, okay? Violation of this honor could then, as now, spark immense outrage and even war. An ambassador represents a leader, Thus, Paul was a representative of Christ, and yet he was bound as if a criminal. The word for ambassador here is presbeuo. It means to act as an established statesman or a diplomat, a trusted, respected ambassador who is authorized to speak as God's emissary, meaning to represent his kingdom. That helps word studies definition, and I always love when they um, take a word if it's translated as ambassador, and then they put it in the definition. That's not the way that you, you define words. In other words, sometimes people will say, well, this is an ambassador, and then they explain what an ambassador is by saying he's an ambassador. doesn't work. You need to not use the same word in the explanation as you do in what you're explaining. Anyway, um, it is found only here and in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where it says, we'll take you there, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And it says in verse 20, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That is what their duty as apostles were. They were ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Okay, the ambassador of Christ, who represented the one who knew no sin, but who was made to be sin for us, was also accounted as the one who had committed the fence. Paul emulated his Lord well in order to bring the word to the world. Even today, he is despised by the Jews. If you want to talk to somebody that knows who Paul is, and you want to talk to him about uh, theology, they'll say, I don't want to hear about Paul. They don't want to hear anything about it. You know, now you might uh, you might get them to listen to the Gospels because they know Jesus is a Jew, and they might say, "Oh, he was a heretical Jew," but they might listen to it. I don't know, but when you they don't know that Paul was a Jew. Most Jews don't realize that. They think that Peter and Paul were non-Jews. They'll say, "Oh, he was a Christian." Well, yeah, he was Christian, but he was also a Jew. Most Jews that you hear come to Christ are fully surprised when they start reading the New Testament and they say, "This is a Jewish book." All the guys that are writing it are Jews. They're completely taken aback by it because they don't realize that that is the case. Except for Luke. Yeah, well, Luke is not a Jew. That's correct. He was a chronicler, and he was um, a Gentile. He was a Gentile doctor. Um, does I, I, I'm not going to go there because I brought it up in a study not too long ago, but does anybody know where you find out that Luke is not a Jew? There are those who are with me... Uh... It's not, but you got the right. We will go there because if Burke has forgotten it, then we need to go over it. It's in Colossians chapter 4. Okay. Yeah, Colossians chapter 4. And he's, I'm, I'm just going to have to read this to you so you can see this. Um, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. 
and Jesus who is called Justice. These are my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God. So you were right. That's it. Okay. Who are of the circumcision, meaning they are Jews. Jews. They have proved to be a comfort to me. Now, there were a couple others he talked about earlier in verse 7, Tychicus, and etc. So he's talking about the Jews. And then he says, Epaphras, who is one of you. Okay, so obviously Epaphras is not a Jew. Jew. One of you, a bondservant of Christ, greets you, always laboring fervently for you in my prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in the, all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has great zeal for you and those who are in Laodicea and those in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you, meaning they are with Paul. They're with Paul. And because he says, these are the my only fellow workers for the kingdom of God who are of the circumcision, and Luke and Demas are included with Epaphras, it means that they are not of the circumcision. They're not Jews. Okay, so there you go. That's how we know. It's undis- it is indisputable, and yet people will still dispute it. Okay, it's very clear. Luke was not a Jew. So what was he doing? He was just hanging out with them before Jesus? Or, uh, oh, he, no, Luke, he... Luke came in with Paul. He didn't come in at Jesus' time. Okay. Yeah, no, he came in with Paul. Um, yes. So um, let's see here. Um, uh, yes, Paul emulated his Lord well in order to bring the, world, the word to the world. Even today is despised by Jews. His words are attacked by world leaders and college professors. And his life and work is even diminished by ill-informed Christians as to the nature of what his writings mean. If you're in the Hebrew Roots movement, you've heard Paul maligned many, many times because they, they, they say that he's an apparent, he's not proper in his theology, etc. Because Paul completely destroys, if you read him, if you read his writings, you have to either say that they're not canon, they don't believe belong in the Bible because they contradict our theology, or you have to say our theology is R-O-N-G. It's wrong, okay? And most people aren't willing to do that. Once they've got it in their head that they are right, R-I-T-E, then they will never change their minds, okay? See, I'm never wrong. Okay, that's just making a joke there. R-I-T-E is not right. Okay, he is often ignored by churches, and yet it is his writings which establish proper doctrine for all churches during the Gentile-led church age. People don't want to have Paul, not just because he refutes things like Hebrew Roots Movement, the Judaizers, etc., because he actually provides proper doctrine for the church age, which does not fit believe it or not, with things like the Sermon on the Mount, because Jesus wasn't speaking to the church at the time. He was speaking to the Jews about the ideal of what they needed to do in order to be perfect under the law, okay? And so what Paul says does not fit there. And people love to cite the Sermon on the Mount. As a matter of fact, I think there are some preachers in the Episcopal Church that have never preached a sermon outside of the Beatitudes, because it's feel-good for them. This is the ideal. This is how we're to live and yet it has nothing to do, it has something to do with the church, don't get me wrong, but it's a, it, it's, he is speaking to Israel under the law, it is a tutor of what he is saying, this is the ideal, you will never meet this ideal, we need something different, hence Christ said those things, and then he was crucified, okay, he died for the sins of the people, and then the new covenant was issued, okay, or it came into effect, and so uh, even, even, mainstream supposedly denominations will 
debase Paul. They will not speak of him properly, or they'll say, we don't need to hold to this because, you know, Paul says things like uh, women are not to teach or have authority over men, right? They don't like that in denominations today because they've ordained 14,000 billion different women into positions they're not supposed to be in according to the Bible, all right? And then they, after the women are ordained, next thing you know, you start ordaining other people that are obviously morally deficient. Next thing you know, you've got a church that is no longer a church, okay? Then this was all all relayed to us by Paul, very specifically, especially when he wrote to Timothy. But that's a different issue. We'll keep going on. He's often ignored by churches, and yet it is his writings which establish proper doctrine for all churches during the Gentile-led church age. As Christ's ambassador, rejecting him and his word is thus a rejection of Christ and his word. But in his life, the Lord allowed him to be so bound. He was bound in chains and it actually worked out effectively for ministering to some people at some times. He always includes that when he writes about those things. The word translated here as chains, we're going to see that in the next book, aren't we? In Philippians, where he speaks about his chains and how it's had a positive effect. Anyway, the word translated here as chains is actually in the singular. Paul would have been bound by a manacle connected to a chain, and that made then have been connected to his Roman guard, but it's a chain. It's not his chains. Or it could be that his chain was bound to a ring on the wall next to him, or even loose. If loose, it could easily be grabbed by the guard as he tried to escape. No matter what, Paul was free on one hand so that he could move about, write, and so forth. But he was bound. It is this chain which he is now considering his badge of his apostleship. Unlike other ambassadors who were considered immune from prison, Paul found his ambassadorial duties intimately connected to his confinement. The whole thing is just like a paradox, but such is life. In this state, he asked for prayer and supplication. Okay, we saw that just a minute ago in verse 18, that in my, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. That's his words from verse 19. As can be seen, his request for prayer wasn't just some arbitrary desire. I'm sorry, what I just read, wait a minute, was that verse 19 or was that 20? Okay, so it was 20, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Okay, yes, but he did ask for it earlier in verse 18 and 19, so there you go. Um, Let's see here. As can be seen, his request for prayer wasn't just some arbitrary desire, as if he was looking for people to unrecognize unnecessarily recognize him. Rather, he truly needed this prayer because of the abnormal state in which he was placed. He, an ambassador bound to a chain, was a representative to the Gentile world of the grace of God which is found in Jesus Christ. Okay, it's rather incredible to think that uh, how much of Paul's writings actually came from really, really crummy circumstances. And yet you would never get that from an initial reading of it. He's always uplifting. He's always trying to correct things. He's trying to help people out with their dysfunctions and all kinds of other things. And most of the time he was just having difficulties of his own. And what did he do? He asked for prayers so that he might speak effectively. He didn't ask for prayers for, you know, I just, I need to get rid of this and I need to sort this out in my life and all that, that didn't interest him. Now, he did ask for his affliction, his thorn in the flesh, to be taken away from him. 
said he asked three times, and the Lord said, you know, my grace is sufficient for you. And after that, you don't hear him asking for anything. I mean, it's just, he goes on and on like a, a Energizer bunny. It's just amazing. Uh, life application. Christ Jesus was made a public humiliation in order to reconcile us to our Heavenly Father. Paul followed him in this and became an ambassador of Christ who was frequently, I mean frequently, afflicted with trials, imprisonments, beatings, and the like. Should we not consider that oppression and trial for the sake of the name of Christ is also a badge of honor if we suffer? Let us not forget that our faithful testimony in such circumstances will be rewarded by the Lord when we face him on our day of judgment. We've all got to be judged. We're, you know, not for, for, not for sin. That's all behind us. We just read that a few minutes ago from 2 Corinthians uh, 5.19, uh, that we're not being judged for sin, no longer being imputed sin. We cannot lose our salvation. If you are not being imputed sin, then you can't lose your salvation. Everybody got that? Because sin, by sin, is the wages of death, okay? If you sin, you get your wages of death. You are spiritually cut off from God. Okay, you're not being imputed sin, and therefore you cannot die, meaning be spiritually cut off from God again, and therefore you cannot lose your salvation. One plus one will always equal two. It will never equal anything else, despite what modern CRT teachers like to tell you. Okay, it will always, always be correct. And when Paul says that you're saved and you're sealed by the Holy Spirit and you're not being imputed sin, you cannot lose your salvation. I feel so bad for people that are in the type of bondage that they are, that they believe that they could lose their salvation. It's not going to happen. You'd be psychotic. Oh, well, yeah. You'd be psychotic. You have a miserable life. You just, the whole thing. Right. The what? They can't lose it. So it's like, you know, you're just worrying about it. Yeah, exactly. It's just, it's, it, it's a terrible thing to be in. And uh, let's see here. I always it. ask him, I said, do you tell people about your ability to lose your salvation? How far after you tell them how to get saved? Yeah. I mean, is it the next thing out of your mouth? Like, oh, now that you're saved, guess what? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, Ray Comfort kind of does when he says you have to do this and this and this and right. this. And, but actually, he's implying that it needs to be done for your salvation. Right. So he starts out right, and then he always adds that kind of stuff in. And I'm sorry, that is not how it works. It's very clear how it works if, you know, you go through the simple gospel message, Okay. So our faithful testimony in such circumstances will be rewarded by the Lord when we face him on our day of judgment. Okay, our day of judgment. Where are the two sets of verses that speak of our judgment, meaning we believers in Christ? Anybody know the two passages? I don't remember. Second Corinthians 5. Second Corinthians 5, and there's one other. No. No. I'll give you a hint. Begins with one. Starts with a C and then ends with Corinthians. Anybody? Okay. And then chapter anybody? Let's start with three. Three. You need to polish your glasses. Okay. We're gonna go there because you didn't remember this. And I want you people to remember this always. I mean all people, not you. I mean all people. Okay. One Corinthians chapter three. It says, we're going to start in verse 9. For we are God's fellow workers. Yeah, he's over there kicking himself now because I knew you'd get it. You are God's field. You are God's building. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds on it. He's speaking to people that are teaching the doctrines of Christ, okay? But let each one 
take heed how he builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He doesn't care if it's Peter or Paul. It doesn't matter. There's one foundation, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. This could be a mother teaching her child. This could be somebody telling the gospel at his work, or it could be a preacher in a pulpit. He's talking about building on the foundation, which is Christ. We will be judged for that, not for loss of rewards. I'm sorry, not for uh, imputation of sin, but for loss or uh, rewards or loss of rewards. Okay, no other foundation. Verse 12, now if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear. For the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work, which he has built on it, endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work, which is burned, he will suffer loss. But he himself, oh, I'm sorry, it says there he'll lose his salvation. I can't believe it. No, it doesn't say that at all. It says, but he himself will be saved, yet so as through fire. The fire of the judgment of purging away your wrong doctrine, your wrong building on Christ, your wrong teaching of your children, your wrong uh, attitude towards, uh, you know, uh, proper doctrine, whatever. That is when we face Christ. He is going to look at all of us and he's going to burn away all of the bad and he's going to uh, purify everything that is good and right that we have done. And then in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, it says here, where was that? You said verse 9, didn't you? Yeah. 10. Okay, I'll start in 9. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. There it is. For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known in your consciences. I've said it before, probably within the past month and a half, is that I it terrifies me to think that I would teach something wrong. Obviously, if I'm teaching it wrong, I'm doing it because I don't know I'm teaching it wrong. Because if I knew I was teaching wrong, I'd be doing it. You know, I'd be changing it. I'd say, well, you know, I'm wrong about this. But it terrifies me to think that I am teaching other people and that I, if I'm wrong, they are assimilating wrong doctrine from me. And if that's the case, then the Lord is going to judge me and he's also going to judge them because they believe me. And that's why I say after, or at the beginning and after every class, check out the word. Don't just listen to me. Check out the word because I don't want to be wrong. But if I am wrong, you are the one that's going to have to uh, either correct it or you're going to be judged for it as well. And what does it say? Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well-known to God, and I also trust are well-known in your consciences. So let me push that, because I don't want that thing going off again. Once you once something, uh, uh, you know, bangs, it always bangs twice, and I don't want it, it completely threw off my concentration. So um, uh, let's see here. So that's, that's the situation there, is that uh, uh, we want to uh, properly handle our doctrine. What are you laughing at? I'm, dro I'm dropping that. stuff all over the place. That's what's happening. I got my paper and I knocked the thing off of the uh, off of the uh, blackboard. So 
Anyway, just let you know he can play guitar with his feet. <laughs> What's <pretty> that? Good. <laughs> Uh, anyway, um, we have, um, okay, he's laughing at me because I'm knocking stuff all over the place, so I'm sorry about that. Okay, um, and, and this is live, so I can't cut it out. It's just going to be there forever, people mocking me. All right, let's see here. Verse 621, let's go, let's go on. Tychicus. Tychicus. Tychicus, the dear brother and faithful servant in the Lord, will tell you everything so that you also may know how I am and what I am doing. Okay, I just dropped another one. I can't believe it. All right, here we go. Um, uh, uh, all right, here we go. 621. And this verse begins with the words, but that you also. Yours didn't. This one says, no. verse 21, but that you also may know my affairs and how I am doing Tychicus, a beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make all things known to you. They took one clause and put it in the different. First, yeah. yeah, there you go. But there you go. Uh, this verse begins with the words, but that you also. This is an indication that other churches were apprised concerning Paul's affairs and his condition. This would have been the understood meaning of these words. And this is then made completely evident in the words of Colossians chapter 4, where it says there in Chapter 4, 7, Tychicus, a beloved brother, faithful minister, and fellow servant in the Lord, will tell you all the news about me. Okay, so there you go. You got that. Uh, Tychicus would have been sent out with Paul's letter of instruction, and he would have carried along other information about how he was and what he was up to. This Tychicus is mentioned several times in the New Testament. He is found in Acts 20, verse 4. We're going through the Acts commentary right now, if I haven't told you that recently. Uh, Acts chapter 20 will probably be about two and a half years away. So you got you, if you're uh, really anticipating hearing about Tychicus, you're going to have to wait a while. Okay, hopefully the Lord will be back before that happens, because I, I'm just, you know, every single week, I, we do these reports on Wednesday and on Sunday. And I got to tell you, from Wednesday to Sunday, you can see the degradation of the world in just a couple days. And then you get to the next one. I think next week can't be any more bizarre, and it's more bizarre. And I just keep thinking, when is this going to end? When, when is this going to end? Now, you read Genesis 6, and you say, wickedness filled the world, and the Lord said, you know, the end has come for these people. I'm, I, we're just going to have to wipe them out. And uh, that's Charlie Garrett paraphrase. That's not what it actually says. But, um, uh, you know, you wonder... What does it mean when wickedness fills the earth? Because here we are, and we're, we're not destroyed yet. The tribulation hasn't begun, so it shows you how bad it must have been in Genesis 6, because we're going through this, and we keep thinking, it can't get worse, and it keeps getting worse. Okay, so it must have been really bad when the Lord destroyed the world. And uh, just imagine when the Holy Spirit is taken out, the believers are taken out, there's going to be nothing on this earth to to withhold the wickedness that's going to come after. I, I can't even imagine. I can't even imagine what it's going to be like when we see what we're seeing from day to day. Anyway, a little diversion. Sorry about that. Yeah, there'll only be CNN. That'll be, oh, oh, talk about, let's just end it now. Okay, so Tychicus is found in Acts 20, verse 4. There he is described as a person, being a person of Asia. He was also, Asia does not mean Asia what we think of today. You got Asia Minor, where Galatia is and all that. Okay, there you go. That's, it, it's completely different than what we think of as Asia. All right. He was also accompanying Paul, accompanying Paul from Corinth to Asia. 
He is mentioned in 2 Timothy 4.12 and in Titus 3 verse 12 as well. So he kind of spans uh, Paul's writings, and you know that he was somebody that was with Paul through much of his ministry. In this letter, he is called a beloved brother and a faithful minister in the Lord. The word used for minister is diakonos. This is the source of our word deacon, and it comes from two separate words. Anybody know what the two words are, dia and konos, what they mean? Dia, think of through, okay, parameter or diameter, all right, the diameter of a circle. So you got through. Anytime you see the word dia, it would be through. It can be translated other ways as well, but the general meaning of dia is through. Konos is the word dust, okay? So uh, dia meaning through and konis meaning dust. Therefore, it is someone who scurries through the dust and thus is a servant or a minister. When we think of a deacon today, we think of somebody that sits behind the pastor and, you know, looks professional and whatever. That's not what a deacon is. A deacon is a person that actually does the dirty work, okay? That would be a deacon. He's the one that scurries through the dust. He's making sure that things get done and things are proper, okay? Whatever. It's not an amen corner? It's not an amen Well, I suppose you could do it if you threw a bunch of dust over there and had him sit in it. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, it is someone who scurries through the dust, and it is thus a servant or a minister. In this verse, he is doing exactly what the name implies. He is traveling with the message through the dusty streets of cities for the benefit of the saints. This term is probably not being applied to him in the technical sense of a deacon, but rather it points to the duties which he is carrying out. He is ministering to Paul as a friend, a brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant. It is this hearty soul who was with Paul in such a close relationship who will make all things known to you. Not only would he bring the beautiful epistle in his hands, and not only would he tell about how Paul was doing, but he would also answer any further questions that would come about concerning Paul and his ministry. Life application. How willing are you to relay the good news concerning the gospel to others? Tychicus was willing to travel by land and sea in order to get the news out to those who are hungry to hear it. Are you at least willing to share it in the circles that you travel? Do the people at the restaurant you frequent even know that you're a Christian? Get the news out. Okay, um, I got a question for you. Paul left Tychicus sick somewhere. Where was that? Miletus. I left Tychicus sick in Miletus. Okay, why is that important to know? He didn't heal him. He didn't claim healing in Jesus' name over Tychicus, right? He left him sick in Miletus. Uh, doctrine actually matters, and when people claim healing and it doesn't happen, all you are doing is harming that person. You know, we, we see that in the projects. When somebody might come along that's a, uh, uh, you know, joining us for a day, and they'll want to impress the people that we're evangelizing each week, and they'll say, well, I claim healing in Jesus' name over you. And the next week we come back and he's not there, but the guy is still sick. That doesn't leave a very good testimony for uh, what is going on in the world. So we, I, we have to stop today because we're not going to have time to, to finish another one. But um, uh, Paul also uh, was unable to heal somebody else. He said he almost died for the sake of the gospel. Uh, no, Epaphroditus almost died for the sake of the gospel, meaning Paul couldn't heal him. And then, yes, Timothy also had stomach problems. 
ongoing, uh, you can tell by the way Paul writes it to him, and instead of saying, you know, I'm, I'm sending you this prayer cloth so that you can touch it and be healed, which <laughs> ministries do all over the world, they send you healing water and prayer cloths, and it only costs you a donation to their ministry. Instead of doing that, he um, uh, said, drink a little wine for your stomach problems, right? Uh, Paul the doctor, he's telling him, this might help you because I didn't help you. Sitting down to write a R-I-T-E. Like yeah, to write, that's right, R-I-T-E, a prescription, a little wine for your uh, frequent stomach ills. So those things are important to remember, is that if you come across somebody that's in a charismatic church and they start doing that, it is good to remember those names, it is good to remember the things that happened, because if you don't, then, you know, you're, you're really not helping the cause when you just lead the guy away and say, well, there are people that aren't healed in the New Testament, he's never going to go check. But if you know the names, and if you know where they're located and why they were not healed when Paul didn't do it, it tells you that the, uh, the healing of people by the apostles is very similar to the word of prophecy being received by prophets, whether it's in the Old Testament or the New. Did everything that Jeremiah said in his life, was, was everything that Jeremiah said in his life a prophecy from the Lord? No. But there were certain times when he knew that this was a word from the Lord. And the same thing is true with Isaiah. Isaiah says, you're not going to uh, recover from this boil. Get your house in order. You're going to die. And then it says that he went out and he's in the courtyard. And what happens? The word of the Lord came to him. And he knew that it was the word of the Lord. I have a prophecy for you. Okay. Turned around and went in and told Hezekiah, the Lord has added 15 years to your life. Same thing happens with healing. They knew when somebody would be healed. How it happened, I don't know, but Peter said to the, the beggar who's asking for alms, he said, in the name of Jesus, I heal you, and he pulled him up, and the guy was healed. So uh, it not healing is not something that you can claim over anybody. It has to come from the Lord. It cannot be something that you just say, I'm going to do this. Please remember these things, because there are some people that may be listening to this that are in churches where they do that. That is not a healthy thing to do. It is not appropriate to do. We pray for healing for people, and if the Lord heals them, bonus. If he does not, they need to they need to find out why they are suffering, because God can be glorified through that as well. And we see that even in Paul's afflictions. You know, I, I saw a guy one time, uh, he posted something, and he said, um, talking about healing, healing, you know, this charismatic thing. And I said, well, you know what? Paul didn't uh, heal himself. And he said, it doesn't work that way. He was, he was talking about Benny Hinn and how Benny Hinn just healed everybody. And he said, it doesn't work that way. You can't heal yourself. And so, it, obviously, because Benny Hinn went into the uh, hospital with a heart attack. Remember that one? When he just said, oh, heal me in Jesus' name. Okay, so have right doctrine. Understand these things. And uh, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for the chance to come into your presence and to share in your word. And we do uh, just ask that people would be willing to read this word to apply it to their lives, to think on it, to meditate on it, to consider the different aspects of doctrine that are uh, conveyed in your word, and to uh, be sure to help others along with those things as well, because there are people that are confused, including us. We all get confused with our doctrine, and so we would pray that we would just continue to monitor or uh, to mentally think on, to meditate on your word all the days of our lives. What a great word you've given us, and it tells us about the great, great thing that you have done in our wonderful, precious Lord Jesus. 
And so it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, let me back this thing up. Say goodbye to the folks online. You know, we're going to go to break, 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 yeah.